Hello everyone, we wanted to just address the subject matter chosen for this month may be triggering for some listeners. We would like to stress that if it's so, to please listen at your own discretion. As well myself, I'm a survivor of sexual assault and there will be portions of this episode where I'll get a bit emotional. And while it may be unpleasant and triggering, speaking about rape and its impacting trauma has become an even more important subject to me. I spit on your podcast, a monthly horror podcast brought to you by the Spinsters of Horror. This is the time once a month where Jess puts down her bloody knitting needles and Kelly steps away from the TV to discuss horror movies and sometimes other horror mediums with a thoughtful analysis, research, and passion. On this episode, we'll be discussing the ever-controversial subgenre of horror, rape revenge. Is it feminist or is it filth? The movies for, up for discussion are the classic I Spit on Your Grave, uh, the inspiration for our podcast name, and the newly released MFA. So pick your poison and listen on, if you dare. So Kelly, why'd you pick these movies? I picked I Spit in Your Grave because it is the infamous rape revenge movie. Of all the rape revenge movies, that is the one that is the most well-known. And MFA is, I think, a modernized take on the rape revenge story, and it was written and directed by women, which isn't often the case. So I thought it would be a great contrast of viewpoints, and very they're very, very very different uh, types of movies, so I thought that they would be wonderful to, to go hand-in-hand hand together. They are indeed. They uh, they do cross different spectrums of the rape-revenge genre, especially with a film like MFA, where it was like kind of like accidental, where she ac- it accidentally, ha- accidentally happens, but then she becomes a vigilante from that, from that action. So I guess like the first question we want to look at and we want to ask is, are rape-revenge films filth? Are they mindlessly sexually violent, misogynistic films, or are they feminist in nature? So, how do you feel about these questions, Kelly? I want to start it off by, and I love definitions, but the definition of a rape revenge film is a film or films that feature both a rape, either many rapes or attempted rape or just one rape, and an act of revenge. So as a genre, one that I am definitely very interested in, I find it fascinating. Um, the rape revenge genre is usually thought of more as particularly uh, like of exploitation kind of schlock. You know, our, I Spit on Your Grave, Wes Craven's Last House on the Left. Uh, they were among the most reviled of the so-called video nasties. Uh, Roger Ebert said of I Spit on Your Grave that it was a movie so sick reprehensible and contemptible that I can hardly believe it's playing in respectable theaters. He also added that attending it was one of the most depressing experiences of my life. We have Mick Martin and Marsha Porter in their video movie guide. They called it one of the most tasteless, irresponsible and disturbing movies ever made. That's in re- with regards to I Spin in Your Grave. There are a lot of kind of pros and cons and issues for and against these types of films. Um, some issues with the rape revenge 
genre overall is that they focus on the gruesome depiction of rape and the equally gruesome depiction of revenge. Nothing is spared in these movies. Um, And it also frequently involves castration and some kind of severed genitals. Uh, The genre seems to revel not only in the images of the violence in general, but in images of sexualized violence against women, in particular women. Uh, Some people claim that the viewers of these films are encouraged to identify with the rapists, but then others, like other people, see these films, rape revenge films, as very powerful, you know, scenes and um, movies that show the reality of sexual violence. An aspect of people being against or finding them quite distasteful is that rape revenge movies, a staple in them is that they're victims of these sexual uh, assaults or abuse are very attractive. The, they're very attractive women. So Mir Zarchi, who is the director of I Spit in Your Grave, used Camille Keaton due to her quote unquote, slim, delicate figure and ethereal beauty. And he's also claimed to come at this movie with a pro-feminist aim. So if that's the case, then he really didn't need to use a beautiful woman because as we know, literally anyone can be raped, right? And we are. So these rape revenge movies fetishize the female Avenger. And I love when I was reading and doing the research, calling her the female Avenger, I'm just, I really, really love. So I'll definitely use that throughout the whole podcast. So they they fetishize the female Avenger by using attractive women, Maybe because gender and sexual attraction is the center of the genre. In the past, they've used in different movies Farrah Fawcett, Raquel Welch, like very beautiful women, sometimes models in these movies. So I, I can understand where people are coming from. Um, we also have the rapist, you know, as very ugly gentlemen, or at least they have really ugly characteristics. However, Chris Sarandon in the movie Lipstick is not an, not an unattractive gentleman, but obviously has very unattractive characteristics. There is also the kind of the viewpoint that it's not, that it's just men that enjoy rape revenge movies, that, they, that it's titillating and it's, you know, thrilling for them to watch. But women also really enjoy watching these movies. You know, Mad Max Fury Road when that came out, that's a very female positive movie. Thelma and Louise, we had very enthusiastic female audiences. You know, we really connected to that movie. Uh, the I read about, you know, in a very enthusiastic, you know, female-based audience at the remake of I Spin in Your Grave, you know, cheering, you know, Jennifer Hills on. And interestingly enough, most scholarship on the rape revenge genre has been written by women. So Alexandra Heller Nicholas, which some would actually say is the voice in the rape revenge genre analysis, the author of Rape Revenge Films, A Critical Study. She said, these films have traditionally been assumed as being uh, for a pretty regressive, ideologically bankrupt male demographic. This is simply untrue. She also said, There is a broad range of women I have met who embrace these films for their sometimes unflinching determination to not hide the horror of sexual violence, and it is not difficult to find these writings, like my own, both online and in print. I have this book. I sadly have not been able to finish it because rape revenge goes beyond the horror genre. We see it in westerns and exploitation and dramas, courtroom dramas like The Accused. So it's a great book. I definitely look forward to finishing it. And I think everybody should take a look at it if they're interested in the genre at all. 
This is a, a very interesting and uh, triggering topic for myself, as I've explained in the uh, disclaimer, being a survivor of sexual assault. And I understand where people would ask that question is like, do we find these films uh, just misogynistic or they're or they are feminist in nature and i stayed away from the rape revenge genre for a very long time uh just because i think i was at that camp where i thought they were misogynistic and why would anyone want to watch uh something so horrific being displayed on the screen but then over the years, um, as I've gotten more involved in the horror community and watching more horror, um, I felt like I needed, I thought, <laughs> I felt like at the beginning of the month that, okay, I'm ready to watch some of these films and, you know, um, be ready to open up the conversation about that. And as, as you'll hear, as we, as I dis will discuss this more as we throughout the podcast, why I opened up to it more. It may not be my favorite genre that I may continue to follow through with, but it does definitely definitely has a voice. And when I was doing more research about this, uh, Kenneth Muir in his uh, book uh, Horror FAQ, he writes a whole chapter on rape revenge genre called uh, Vengeance is a Human Right and talks about how the violent depiction of rape has led the genre to become condemned as misogynistic and critics on the left and right think is the genre condoning rape. And this is coming in terms of talking about rape revenge, but yet many viewers in the horror genre and those who study uh, the horror genre have have talked about this niche in the horror and the horror genre, and they talk about how that this is the furthest from the truth, and that in the horror genre, when rape has happened, it's depicted as brutal, monstrous act visited upon someone who is innocent, but then it allows for the innocent, the innocent victim, to enact brutal revenge on those transgressors. What was really interesting is that he talked about the very first rape revenge film was actually from 1958 called The Virgin Spring by Igmar Bergman. Um, it's not technically a horror film. It was actually an Academy Award winner for best film in the 19 in 1958. Um, but it's based upon a 12th century Swedish ballad called Tor's Daughter and Vange. And the story is about a doctor's daughter who is raped and murdered by an, who they call an unwashed herdsman and who ends up staying at the doctor's home for the night. When the doctor finds out about his daughter's murder, he enacts vengeance against the murderer. Um, this film really focuses on the actions of the patriarchy and his faith, and it questions why God would let such a horrible thing happen to someone so innocent, which a lot of people would say, you know, when, uh, when a woman experiences uh, rape or some kind of sexual violence, people ask, like, why would God let this happen? Anyway. He also feel his wife in the in this uh, ballad also feels that they are being punished for loving their daughter more than God and Christ, and so to atone for his actions, he builds a church and miraculously a spring springs up from the ground where his daughter was murdered, where he sees it as a sign from God. So it's interesting that we're seeing that the vengeance, his vengeance, is justified because the perpetrator is male and he is devoutly religious. So it's interesting to see like. The perpetrator is male who enacts the violence on his daughter who is thus technically his property and so because he's male and because he's religious his actions for what he did as seen as forgivable but when women enact violence against their transgressors it's seen as abnormal and is uncomfortable and this is why we see a lot of people attacking rape revenge films as uh, very controversial in nature because they really like throw the truth right right the, the, they throw the truth of rape and its effects into your face and makes people very uncomfortable but when they see women enacting their vengeance they become very they become more uncomfortable because it's, t it's taking that innocent image of a woman and making her almost monstrous as we talked as we talked about in barbara um barbara creed's book the monstrous feminine another topic or theme against 
uh, rape revenge movies would be how our female Avengers uh, enact their actual revenge. So in I Spit in Your Grave, uh, Zarchi has Jennifer Hills use sexuality in most of the kills to enact her actual revenge. So it can be kind of hard to believe that a woman would want to engage in any kind of sexual activities after that extensive or any kind of sexual assault or abuse or rape. So, you know, act very seductive, have sex or any kind of sexual activities, especially mainly, sorry, mainly with our abusers. So sometimes these rape revenge films, you have the women using their sexuality and stuff like that to, to start and enact all of their revenge. And that can be, that's kind of, that's a hard one to take. Uh, Carol Clover, the infamous, you know, men, women and chainsaws author, um, say that these are more fantasies than obvious reality that, you know, because these women also take up guns and weapons, start stalking and killing, which, you know, these are not things we're doing in day-to-day lives, so it's not entirely a realistic thing, but they're more of this a rape-revenge fantasy over more of a realistic kind of um, uh, incident. Um, so these films can actually address issues of sexual violence. They can be used as a narrative tool to talk about broader issues, maybe politics, sexual desire, classism. Uh, so Sarah Projansky, who wrote Watching Rape, Film and Television in Post-Feminist Culture in 2001, identifies a feminist paradox both as a desire to end rape and a need to represent rape in order to challenge it. These rape revenge movies often show that rape is brutal, it's unglamorous. So there's this great divide between feminists with these movies and women and people with these movies. So on one hand, you show the absolute brutality that women are exposed to with assaults and rape. So there's a kind of this great divide between feminists and, you know, I spit in her grave, uh, you know, particularly in rape revenge. On one hand, they show the brutality towards women. Um, but, you know, this has kind of changed over time. Uh, they originally really thought that they were sleazy, misogynistic, and only for male audiences. But now we're kind of thinking, you know, on the other hand, it can show commentary and how, you know, the whole dynamic of male groups and gender violence. There are some people that find comfort in the rape revenge due, their, due to their own experiences, and they can find it quite therapeutic, cathartic to watch these movies, right? There's injustices in the world and, and in our own, you know, personal experiences. Um, we have not felt any kind of closure overall, and this can be quite helpful for some women. I'm going to bring up the Malus Maleficarum from 1487 again, because that's an ongoing aspect of, you know, feminism and being a woman. Um, so in that, and we talked about it last month's podcast, that women stole penises and there was, you know, we saw the woman as castatrice. There was a victim named Johnny in I Spit in Your Grave, which is also slang for penis. So that's interesting. Uh, and castration is very common and actually in a kind of an iconic revenge tactic in rape revenge movies. So in Barbara Creed's, like Jess mentioned, The Monstrous Feminine, um, you know, what is it about women that make them so shocking, terrifying, and horrific? We see women as monsters. So the monstrous feminine power can make men fear her, but not for castration, but because of rejecting her role in the patriarchal society. This figure, this monstrous feminine, this figure is huge in the rape revenge genre. 
So there's uh, this gentleman, David Andrews, who wrote, Reconsidering the body genre, rape, revenge, and post-feminist softcore as biocultural phenomena says that castration robs the victim of reproductive fitness. It changes one sexual trauma through another and offering male viewers a visceral analog for rape. Carol Clover, again, author of Men, Women, and Chainsaws. Um, so in the rape, she's saying that in rape revenge films, there's almost always, it's always, almost always from the point of view of the victim, not the attacker. There is absolutely nothing erotic about the rapes, and I spit in your grave, Ms. 45 are irreversible. They're brutal, they're violent, they're awful, they're terrible to watch, right? So rape revenge then encourages women to take the place of, or at least identify with, uh, you know, violent, empowered assaulters. But then it encourages men, on the flip side, to identify with or take position of the rape victim in general, and uh, and knows no sex. So a film like I Spit in Your Grave is literally predicated on the assumption that all, quote unquote, all viewers, male and female alike, will take the rape victim's, you know, part um, to heart. They'll feel her violation. And similarly, all viewers of all genders and sexes are meant to take part of the revenger as she, or sometimes he, gets her bloody vengeance. It's important to point out that rape revenge films are designed and often quite consciously to let everyone in the audience experiment with and experience different types of gender roles, whether it as trauma, empowerment, or both. That instability can lead to a wide range of responses that we've seen, right? People that are, you know, find these movies just apprehensible and they cannot watch them and they think they're trash, they're filth, right? Then others find them incredibly empowering. Um, so this perhaps explains why the rape revenge film is responsible for both some of the most critically applauded and most viscerally derided films of the last 40 years. Uh, for better or for worse, the rape revenge trope reveals how violence squats upon our understanding of gender and how rarely and timidly that is confronted in popular culture. That's from a quote uh, from an article I read. I'm sorry, I don't have the name right now. And, you know, let's think about it. Really, what's harder to watch? The rape or the revenge? And I think what you might find is that it's the rape that's the, the harder thing to watch. Definitely um, a point that horror historian Adam Rockcliffe makes about the concept of rape revenge films. The viewer wallows in the degradation and the humiliation of women far more than slashers do. And when I read this comment, I thought this was a really interesting phrase because but whereas both the slasher and rape revenge genre focus primarily on the female victim as vulnerable, we see that we see rape revenge take it one step further. So what I'm explaining is that in slasher films, we we see the women becoming brutally murdered, and then we always see the final girl who witnesses her friend's murders. She becomes injured. She somehow survives survives to live against the killer, and she takes that trauma of that one woman in her life. But she may be at great peril, but she is able to overcome it, and she becomes either stronger from it, or she may, you know, experience some trauma, trauma from that, you know, one night in time being hunted down by a slasher. Whereas the rape revenge film, it takes the female vulnerability one step further by having her being sexually violated and then left for dead. She has to make her way back to her old life, which will never be the same again, because the perpetrator did not just take away, did not take her life away from her in a very physical sense, but was trying to murder her, but also took her life away in a complete sense, because now 
um, I, I, want, I wanted to say like victim or victim slash survivor. She now has to deal with the mental, physical and emotional trauma that ca- that comes with having been violated in the most intimate sense. And even after she does take her vengeance, that act, the memory of what she experienced will never truly leave her. So when I look at these films, they are feminist in nature because in these films, we see women who take on that avenging role. They're trying to take back a, a sense of trying to take back their life. We see that in with Jennifer. We'll see that. We see all that with Amer- with Mary and American Mary. We saw that with Noelle in MFA. Uh, I can't remember. I don't. I ha- I didn't end up watching Revenge, but we see like these women are all trying to, in one way, take back their life, and from that moment that was brutally taken from them. But also, it shows the reality of the justice system that it's still not a friend to women. So this was pointed out by Julie Bindel, who once actually pr- protested, physically protested, "I spit on your grave." Uh, she wrote an article like years later, like saying how she was wrong and that "I spit on your grave" is a feminist film because it's because like a film like The Accused, where the accused ends up showing this you know dreadful act, but it shows this like positive outcome of the the victim being uh, justified in her and uh, be, being justified in that the court system was with her and behind her when that's really not the case and so it really does portray that rape and the aftermath of it for women is is much more realistic than a film like the accused which is actually much more harmful because that's not a very realistic uh, depiction of what it's like for uh, women who experience rape in the aftermath of it so our first film that we're going to talk about is i spit on your grave I don't like women giving me orders. I spit on your grave. What you are about to see did happen. on your grave. This woman will soon cut, chop, break, and burn five men beyond recognition. And there isn't a jury in this country that will convict her. I'll give you something to remember for the rest of your life. I spit on your grave. Relax. I'll make you feel like you've never felt before. God bless your hands. Wait till you feel this. Oh, yeah, that's fantastic. No. No, not I spit on your grave. What do you want? It's you I want.
Right. So I watched I Spit in Your Grave quite a long time ago. I mean, it's an infamous movie and it's I pretty much will watch anything unless you have real animal torture and death in it. Then I won't watch you talking to you. Cannibal Holocaust. Uh, so I watched it a long I watched it a long time ago. I'm, I'm a fan of it. I'm also a huge fan of the remake that came out a couple of years ago. So I've, I've seen this movie multiple times. For myself, I, of course, like any other horror fan, has I've heard of I Spit on Your Grave. It's a cult classic. I But I never watched it, like I said, because I was never one to want to sought out watching uh, rape revenge films. So really, I purely watched this film for this month's podcast. So I saw it for the first time the weekend of Horrorama. That was a big weekend. <laughs> that was, a, oh my God, yeah, that was a big weekend. It was. How Last month, it was all new watches for me. This month, it's all new watches for Jess. Yeah, exactly. Completely new watches. watches. So what I like about I Spit in Your Grave, I do like the exploitation style of it. It's very 70s. I like the narrative. I I do. I'm a huge fan of the rape revenge genre, so I like the premise of it. I like the revenge aspect of it. I just like revenge movies overall. Um, so I'm just a generalized fan of, of the genre, and I just liked... Um, a lot of the aspects of the movie. I mean, the acting was pretty good too, but I more just like stylistically liked it a lot. I don't know what to say about how I like this film. I like, I also like its gritty nature. Um, to me, it feels like it truly represents a moment of rage. Like just that, like, I feel like that film is a very feeling film. Like you just, like how she goes from like this whole sense of peace and tranquility and quiet and then this this horrible inhuman act happens to her and like the last uh, the rest of the film is just like this pure feeling of rage of just like going on and taking back her uh, her revenge taking her revenge on her on the perpetrators of the violence against her so i i like that aspect of the film I mean, I don't know if it's these films where you're like, I love it. Yeah. You know what I mean? I don't like it's, there's <laughs> I can understand it. You got to think of it as like a just as a movie, as entertainment. And if you kind of bring it down to that kind of level, it's it's sometimes a bit yeah, easier. Yeah, exactly. So dislikes. Wow. The only thing like I would prefer in my rape revenge films for my female adventure to not use sexuality at all to enact her revenge. In the I Spit in Your Grave remake, she never at all, and any of her um, kills uses her sexuality as um, a way to initiate the revenge. So though I completely understand why it's used and how it can be effective, I don't like that particularly. Yeah, um, I know I, I have some comments about that later on that we'll discuss more in depth about the film. My dislikes about the film? Well, clearly, the 30 minutes of being very uncomfortable and feeling sick to my stomach, watching the whole, just watching the whole scene of, like, Jennifer essentially being hunted and raped multiple times. That was, uh, that was really hard to watch, um, which obviously makes that film, you know, the film that it is, but... I disliked it, and I also disliked it because it just ends. Like, you just see that last scene at the end where she's on the boat, and it just ends, and you don't see anything else after that. You don't see how, like, she's now killed, like, four men. How does she feel after this? You know, does that does that adrenaline of rage when she goes, like, over? Does, like, what happens right from there? So, it, to me, that's why the film just feels like a moment of, like, pure emotion and adrenaline happening. 
Right. Yeah, it, it ends very abruptly. It's like this moment in time type deal. So before we get into the way like Kelly and I like to do our podcast is before we like to go in and talk more about our thoughts about the films is we kind of like to give some context to, to these films as to why, you know, they came out around the time and kind of connect it to some more uh, real events that are happening. And so when we look at a film like I Spit on Your Grave, it was uh, filmed in the 1970s. And so what we wanted to look at is kind of like a brief not very it wasn't very pleasant uh, research but a brief history of rape in the 70s and a time and what it was like for women and so uh, so a little bit of a kind of brief history and it's interesting because the 1970s once again as we talked about in our prior podcast was a huge time of change for women and lots of movement and uh, for feminists for women for female rights and the uh, real growth of the feminist movement and at the same time this is where we also saw a growth of the rape uh, the rape crisis movement so prior to the 70s you know victims of rape crimes were usually subjugated to further victimization by the defense in the courts and a lot of uh, people who had experienced a lot of people who experienced rape were typically uh, women of color so four women of color Eniza Garcia Joanne Littler, Yvonne Wanro, and Desi Woods were all convicted after killing the rapist in self-defense. So this inspired the early stages of the rape crisis movement in the 1970s because these, this crisis moment was actually led by women of color who were not only fighting against racism, against, but also against years of sexual violence against women of color since the time of slavery. And so the beginnings of this movement were all about confronting and breaking the silence of the issue of rape. This movement concerned, was concerned about the experience of women and legitimization of the victim's claims. The goals of the movement were one, to disrupt the change and social norms that promoted oppression of women and violence against them, and two, to create a support network and a blame-free environment where women could seek support and aid. So by the 1970s, the U.S. federal government had about 1,000 rape crises in operation. Legislations came out, some states reformed their laws to redefine the consequences of rape convictions. The uh, rape shield laws were a protection for the victim, and this allowed for the restriction of the past of sexual history of the victim to be used against them when during trial, which is interesting that we had this, this, that some states had this law passed, and yet it's still something that's still used against women today when they uh, talk about what happened to them. Um, and early rape centers were run by other rape survivors. And so the, tact so the tactics of this movement were to confront rape were very creative. There were things like confrontations, so women supporting women when they are confronting the rapists in public, uh, sending out descriptive lists of men who were raped, they were published in newspapers, uh, the creation of self-defense classes for women, and also we begin to see the beginnings of the Take Back the Night marches. The first one was held in San Francisco in 1978 where, uh, with uh, 5,000 women from 30 states in attendance. It got bigger in New York in 1979, and this event continues worldwide. Jess pointed out uh, about previous podcasts of ours, but definitely, and oddly enough, in the last three podcasts, we've talked about, you know, the state of women in the 60s and 70s when it came to, like, vampire films, witch-related films, you know, these rape-revenge films, the exploitation films, so... Kind of an extra plug, but listen to the other episodes if you want to hear about women in the 60s and 70s. So the 70s definitely was a heightened bad time for women. So in the 70s, rape in some states was legal between married people and seen as a husband's right. Terrible. Terrible. It's called that marital rape, isn't it? Yes. yes. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Uh, and between 1967 to 1984, sex-related murders increased by 160%. Um, a common complaint for rape victims were was the insensitive treatment 
you know, post-rape interviewing and questioning and all of that uh, inquired, they were inquired as to what they did to provoke the attack at the time. And it's still seen that way. But what did we do to cause that to happen? Which as we, if you rationalize that, that's ridiculous. Uh, Susan Brown Miller, she wrote Against Our Will, Men, Women, and Rape. She says, that rape is not a crime of male frenzied libido, but a conscious process of intimidation by which all men keep all women in a state of fear. Um, rape is about the misuse of power. Rape is the enforcement of domination and control. And this is why men primarily rape women and adults rape children and not vice versa. It's not the other way around. Um, so during this time in, in the 70s, um, second wave feminism, the rape crisis movement, so at, at this time, the movement was considered radical because it destabilized the existing social norms. The movement was concerned with the experiences of women and is credited with the legitimization of victim claims, finally. Still not happening prior. Prior to the movement, rape victims involved in legal trials were subjected to further victimization at the hands of defense attorneys and the court system. Victims' rights and protection became a real focus as a result of this movement, which I think Jess said. So that's fantastic and super important. And the last thing, I, you know what? I should have looked this up in Canada. It'd be interesting to know now. But rape is the most underreported crime in America. Awful. And, you know, we'll get into, you know, potentially the reasons why that happens later on. So now to talk about the film I Spit on Your Grave. So originally the the original title to this film was Day of the Woman. And uh, the director, uh, Zarchi, when he wrote this film, he was inspired to produce a film after helping a young woman who had been raped in New York. He tells how he and a friend and his daughter were driving by a park when they witnessed a young woman crawling out of the bushes, bloodied and naked. He later learned that the young woman was taking a common shortcut to her boyfriend's house when she was attacked. They collected the traumatized girl, returned the daughter home, and quickly decided it was best to take, best to take the girl to the police rather than a hospital, lest the attackers escape and find further victims. They quickly decided that they made the wrong decision. The officer, whom Zarchi described as not fit to wear un the uniform, delayed taking her to the hospital instead, insisted that she follow formalities such as giving her full name and the spelling, and even though her jaw had been broken, she could hardly speak. Zarchi insisted the officer take her to the hospital, and he eventually complied. Soon afterward, the woman's father wrote to Zarchi and his friend a letter of thanks for helping his daughter. The father offered a reward, which Zarchi refused. So it's interesting knowing the background to this film, and but at the same time too, how hated this film first came out by a lot of critics. You know, it was a controversial film due to this depiction of graphic violence and a gang rape that is 30 minutes of its film's runtime. It was labeled a video nasty in the UK and it was targeted for censorship. As Kelly already just discussed earlier, Roger Ebert called this film vile bag of garbage and really blasted it as the worst movie ever. I love that he says a vile bag of garbage. It's yeah. so harsh. And upon reception, many of his critics found this film deeply offensive and, gra and felt that the graphic violence was unnecessary. And as I described earlier, there's a lot of protests from feminist groups, particularly at ones at Leeds Cinema in the 80s, that they were protesting that rape is not entertainment. And it was thus the film was also banned in Ireland, Norway, Iceland, West Germany, and initially Canada as a film that glorified violence against women. So it was interesting how all this, like not knowing the background of the story and all these 
people are just like, this is a horrible film. It violence against women. It's so graphic. We don't want to see that. We don't want to see the truth of all that in your face. And yet the director was like, I'm responding to the fact that I was helping a woman who had just recently been raped and the justice system failed her. So I'm angry and I want to have, I want to say something about this. So, and when we see this rape scene in I Spin a Grave, it's not glamorized in any way. Like he, Zarchi shows us for what it is. It is an un uncomfortable act to witness. Jennifer is objectified, she is hunted, she becomes bloodied and injured, and every time she thinks she's gotten away and into safety, it's torn asunder by her rapist. It is a brutal and gut and it's gut-ranging and it makes you feel sick, but that is what rape is. It makes you feel sick. I can see why this would be a controversial film of its time, and I can see why critics scorned it, because it showed the truth. It showed audience what people did not want to see or believe was actually happening. I Spin Your Grave has been uh, quoted to be the most controversial film to hit the world and the most talked about film in cinema history. Another uh, a comment that Zarchi had made, so it was after you know bringing that uh, battered and, and raped woman to the police station, uh, it made it seem like she was just another piece of damaged goods to catalog away. They just had no time for this. Um, and they, she had been asked so many questions and it seemed like the rape hadn't stopped. And that whole broken jaw thing and they're trying to get her to speak is the worst thing I've ever heard. Truly. That's so awful. Uh, so Zarchi has said that, yeah, it was necessary to show the rape explicitly in order to make clear the brutality of it. So I Spin in Your Grave addresses what other rape revenge films perhaps have failed to represent, which is the, the challenge of representing the reality of trauma and rape itself. The inability to capture the magnitude of human suffering that results from sexual violence. That's a quote from Alexandra Heller and Nicholas of Reach, Rape Revenge Films book. Um, I Spin Your Grave is marketed as an exploitation film. And exploitation films, you know, feature suggest suggestive or explicit sex, centralized violence, drug use, nudity, gore. They're they can be bizarre, destructive, full of rebellion and mayhem. Um, so some people couldn't see past this label. They didn't take it seriously and they didn't think it had anything to say. But some people were saying that, you know what, this movie is really just showing what women have been experiencing for years already. Um, there are some misconceptions of the movie that the rape was enjoyed, but this was often, you know, claimed by people who didn't even watch the movie. Definitely. Like, critics hated it, and it divides people, but the influence and the legacy really lives on through I Spin in Your Grave. So before I Spin in Your Grave, rape revenge movies um, were really often, there was, the rape was, or the abuse was the catalyst for men, like Jess talked about earlier, to avenge due to attacks on their wives, their sisters, their daughters, etc. Jess talked about the Virgin Spring, there's anatomy of a murder, and if women did, in fact, avenge themselves it was based on self-defense and it was not premeditated like safe in hell you don't actually see any rape but you do see some harassment in it i did a review on that movie from 1931 uh i recommend folks to read it and watch the movie but uh, i sweet your grave influenced the rest of the rape revenge type movies you know with regards to tropes the narratives the premise the style and everything so though it was an exploitation movie, it was, a it was definitely a higher budget one. It was pretty well shot. The acting was decent, but uh, Azarje hadn't directed anything before. The actors were all amateurs. Um, but, you know, some people think it provides like a raw grittiness, exactly what Jess likes about it. But also there's some heart and soul in it. Um, I think that can definitely be seen through the movie. And Jess explained it really, really well. 
The poster is infamous. The minimal clothing, the bloody knife, the kind of, you know, that kind of that butt shot, which is actually Demi Moore's body. Um, so that female Avenger, that's an iconic, iconic poster and scene. What I have found in a lot of these rape revenge movies, if there's like a gang rape, gang kind of situation involved that we're seeing our hegemonic masculinity coming into play. As single men, I don't think that they would have embarked on such an act against Jennifer, but you get these men together and they start egging each other on. They don't want to be seen as like the weaker man or unmanly or having feelings. And and they say and they say terrible things to each other throughout it. You know what I mean? And th- these men want to act upon it because they don't want to be seen as, you know, less than a man. And that is huge. And, you know, toxic masculinity and everything like that. Um, Jennifer Hills. Like I mentioned earlier, use the sexuality to lure, lure and kill half the men, Johnny and Matthew. The rest is with the axe of the boat. Um, interestingly, Zarji didn't use any music over the rape, and it's just like silent, and it's like just straight on. Like we have to experience it, and you can't, you cannot use music to kind of persuade your feelings one way or another. It's just straight on. You have to experience this and witness this. You know, Camille Keaton, who plays Jennifer Hill, she's dirty, she's bloody. We don't actually see, like, we don't see tons and tons of her body. We see a lot of the men's bodies, like, in that first rape scene, she's hidden in the grass, right? And we see a lot of, like, the men's bodies, their butts, and what they're doing. Um, So we kind of, it subverts the gaze of the viewers to the attackers to prevent any kind of complacency in the viewers to the actual attacks. The rape scenes in I Spin Your Grave are not titillating, as some might think. Um, and, you know, as Keaton is an attractive woman, but she's not a known model. And, yeah, the rape scenes in this are not at all exciting. They're pretty awful and brutal. So in 2007, uh, Michael Kaminsky, he wrote an article called Is I Spin on Your Grave Really a Misunderstood Feminist Film? So when people understand the context of which the director was inspired to make the film, they can see this film as a feminist wish fulfillment, the idea of reacting against violence against women. Uh, Carol Clover, she talks about Ice Winning Your Grave as the male audience is meant to identify with uh, Jennifer and not her, not not the attacker. So changing that male gaze to really identify with what's happening to Jennifer and what she's going through. Also, I Spend in Your Grave came out of the time when the feminist movement was at its height, with uh, marches all around cities were occurring about rape, domestic violence, and unequal pay. This film was about a woman being pushed too far and stating enough is enough, not relying on the law of the land where the fact remains that a majority of men who raped women get away with it. It's not seen, it's, well, while the film is still seen as a bit exploitive, it's not as harmful because it does not show the, it does not show the criminal justice system as a friend women who have experienced sexual violence. We see Jennifer... You know, after she experiences like this horrific, fuck, like it must it, it, in in like Jennifer to it may have been like only like an hour in whatever happened to her, but it feel it, it in way must have felt like an eternity of it never ending. But we see at the end, after she's showered and after she's you know just slowly healing, that she starts to take back her literary work. Cause so she was a writer, um, a writer living out on her own, like staying at her own in a cottage. Like she's definitely 
breaking breaking the female trope of what she was you know was she was an independent woman on her own writing a novel you know just being a career woman and where we see these men feeling they have to pull her down a peg or two and put her back in her place like no you're supposed to be in the household having children having wives and being a sexual object to men we see her taking back her her taking back her life when she starts taping back the uh chapters that she was writing and then her rapist tore, tore up we see a scene of a woman attempting to take back control of her life taking back her identity as a creator so while men destroy women have the innate ability to create so jennifer takes back her power and her identity and i know what uh, kelly addressed this where it's interesting how Jennifer uses sexuality to enact her revenge. In a way, I see this as her taking back her power and her identity in a sexually charged way. She uses how the rapist misconceived about her to her advantage to enact her revenge. She leads them to their doom by acting the part that they prescribed to her when they raped her, when they said she wanted it. So when we see this by playing on their insecurity. So Johnny, you know, wants to be a big man and stuff like that. His wife is clearly very dominant and very domineering and stuff like that. So when Jennifer, you know, um, seduces him, you know, she's playing on that insecurity, giving him what he believes she wants. Uh, Matthew wants a girlfriend and wants a sweet woman to like, you know, take him in and love him. Like she, so she uses these elements against these men to enact her revenge. And then also she threatens the, the close brohood of the two other men when she attacks them with, on the boat. She gets some close, she, all her, all the men, she gets them most close to her and she twists the knife of revenge by ta and she rightfully takes back her power that was taken from her. Once again, um, it's, a, it's addressed by critics, but it's also something that I recognize in the end is that what this film lacks is the ending is how Jennifer contextualizes the act of violence in her life. Did this vengeance heal her pain? What is her life after the fact? And I hear that there's apparently a sequel that was done like 10 years later, and it's about Jennifer and her daughter dealing with the, the families of her, the men she murdered. Yeah, there's three more. There's Spit on Your Grave. Uh, I don't remember their names, but there's two more. And due out next year is Zarchi's true sequel called I Spit in Your Grave, Deja Vu, which stars Camille Keaton reprising her role as Jennifer Hills. Yeah, so that's the one where they're looking at, you know, years later that she's... Many years, yeah, exactly. Many years later of what what happens after the rape. So that's that's interesting. So another question that usually typically comes out about I Spit on Your Grave is says, is this film a feminist film or is this a film about vigilantism? Which is something that we will we will discuss further in the next film after Kelly discusses more about this one. Right. So I Spit on Your Grave. So it goes against rape myths. So five rape myths are women enjoy rape. They do not. No. No means <laughs> no means yes. No. No means, means no. no. <laughs> Women invite assaults by provocative clothing and behavior. They don't. <laughs> and you know, in a nice pit in her grave, she was quote unquote asking for it. She showed all those men her sexy legs, right? So obviously, she deserves it. Um, another myth: men have sudden, sudden, uncontrollable sexual urges. They don't. Um, the rape in I Spin Your Grave is actually premeditated. And rape normally is committed by strangers. That's often by people we know. So the rape revenge f genre in these films, I one of the aspects of it that I like a lot is that there's actually these female characters are incredibly strong. They survive against their oppressors. They enact their revenge. And exactly what Jess was saying, um, you know, overall the rape 
enables, let's say, Jennifer Hills to become an agent of change in her life. Sarah Pojanski again says, uh, rape allows for the Avenger independence, her independence to appear, and it makes us complicit in the revenge. We feel that they deserve it. Quote, unquote, when women fight back against violence and abuse, her actions are reasonable and warranted. A neat little thing that when I was reading, it was brought up and I thought it was super, it was super fun. Um, so I spit in her grave in Halloween. It was interesting too. Oh, came out in 1978. So our female rape Avenger is a man-made monster. They become this after the attack. Jennifer was her writer, you know, a writer going about her life, just living her life. And then this terrible situation happens and then she becomes the Avenger. But also we can see the, these Avengers, the female Avenger, are also kind of final girls. Jess alluded to this a little bit earlier. So in slashers, so like the rape revenge movies can be seen as a hack and slash. And our female Avengers are the final girls. So comparing to Halloween, so Jennifer is a much stronger final girl than Laurie Strode. Strode is a man saving her in Halloween 1 and 2. Jennifer kills everyone without anyone else's help. She does everything herself. She figures it all out. She orchestrates everything. She's sane. She's intelligent and gets away, presumably, with her murders, but we don't know. She uses her wits against the attackers. So the final girls, or survivors, um, are showing kind of the most important refutation of the argument that women are constantly victimized in horror and movies, especially in horror movies. And they're viewed as misogynistic. But we can also argue that the protagonist gives a feminist voice to the horror genre. These rape revenge movies turns a slasher trope around. Women are doing the stalking, the hunting, and killing of often young men. Slashers are triggered by trauma. Same with the female Avengers. And I really feel like rape revenge movies really are showing um, an element of subversive cinema. Jess, on the spot, I'm going to ask you... How do you feel now that you've seen I've Spit on Your Grave that our podcast is named after this movie? Wow, that's really putting me on the spot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I made, I wanted it to be named that. It also sounds really cool. But you had never seen the movie, but agreed to have our podcast named I Spit on Your Podcast inspired by a movie you hadn't seen. So how do you feel about that? Uh, now after seeing the movie and seeing... This is really putting me on the spot. Uh, after seeing the movie, I really can... Fuck. You know what? Fuck it. I'm just gonna say it. You guys are gonna learn a little bit about me. I fucking relate to this in the sense of having gone through what I've gone through in my life and being a survivor of sexual assault and being able to help kind of turn my life around and kind of grow past what my trauma did to me, I feel like I kind of become an Avenger in my own life. And so, yeah, does that? That's great. So you're happy and we can continue calling our podcast. I spit in your podcast. We can definitely continue still <laughs> calling it. I spit on your podcast. Because if you had very negative thoughts about it, then I don't know. That no, might have been a problem. <laughs> I, I've honestly have had no. These films have not given me any negative thoughts in any way. They've inspired me in a very different way. Excellent. Which I know we'll hear about in your res retrospective. <laughs> yes. Excellent. So the next movie we're going to talk about is MFA. 
What are you thinking for your thesis exhibition? I'm hoping that it invites the viewer to look closer at the emotion that's not typical. Yeah, we're not noticing emotion. Let's jump in the deep end this year. Can I uh, see what you're doing? Cool, I like this a lot. So my roommates and I are having a party tonight. You wanna come? Look at you, hot stuff. You're meeting someone special. There's this guy that I don't even know if he's into it. Hi. I actually feel like I might be moving away from painting. But you're so good. Are you sure that you said no and that he heard you? No, no, no. You told me you said wait. How much did you have to drink, Noelle? Something similar happened to our friend. She told the school. They told her she was crazy. I want you to say you're sorry. <gasps> did you see Luke last night? Yeah. How long did you stay? <laughs> Don't let it ruin the rest of your life. I'm sorry to just show up like this. Your story has really inspired me. Your thesis is about my rapists. Not just yours. Mine too. You're all by yourself? Not anymore. Did you try to take advantage of me? I know you like him. Meet a boy. Something like that. I one of the football players from that case last spring. It's not your responsibility. The cops, they are not protecting us. For every one of me, detective, I'm guessing there are a few who never even tried. Why don't you start there? You break the law, there's gonna be consequences. I guess it depends on which law you break. I saw a screening of MFA last year in Toronto. Toronto is amazing for movie screenings. God, it's like there's always something happening that's pretty wonderful. And I believe it was Leah McKendrick that was there, but I don't quote me. It was either the writer or the director that was there. And I saw that movie and it completely blew me away. It's also very emotionally destroying. And I have watched a lot of movies. The weirder, the sicker, the better. I've watched the Serbian film, The Human Centipede, Sallow, Headless. Like, I will watch anything, like I said, that doesn't include true animal cruelty and violence. Um, but this one, every I've watched it twice now, and it sticks with me for days and days after. And no other film has done that for me. None other before MFA. So I heard about this film, I believe through either an article in Rogue Morgue magazine or on their website. And I remember being interested and wanting to see it because of what it was, uh, obviously what it was projecting, but apparently it was also talking about how it was like a purely, uh, purely feminist film. This is my first time watching the film. I watched it yesterday and uh, it literally destroyed me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, <laughs> very powerful film, but yeah. What were you likes? <laughs> what I so much enjoy about this movie is that, like I said in the beginning, I think it's an incredible modernization of this classic rape revenge tale. It's a much more relatable scenario. It shows much more kind of details, kind of quote unquote, kind of like behind the scenes of 
you know, what happens post-rape, not just the revenge aspect of it, of, you know, the period before you take revenge, the period after you take revenge, then everything in between. It showed everything, right? You had closure. You had everything that you wanted within a movie in MFA. And like I said, it's pretty much the most impactful movie I have ever seen and I have watched a lot. It's beautifully done. It's wonderfully acted. It was incredibly thoughtful and thought out. It's just wonderful overall. And when I say like, when I say like this film destroyed me, I didn't like, this film was very powerful because it not only does it really relate to what uh, women experience still today um, about rape culture and what happens on campuses to young women, you know, the things that happen to like protect men who are apparently going to be like rising stars or some bullshit like that. It, but it really shows the trauma. And I think like we all understand that the act of rape is traumatic, but people have a tendency maybe to forget that how traumatic it is for the survivor after what they have to go through when they break their silence and how that trauma how that experiences trauma traumatic or how to live day to day um and the various ways that people try to you know live after a moment like that in their lives and so to me watching noelle's uh, evolution to heal her trauma um the realism of this film uh just how how well it was written and how well they were able to portray how like one act of you know senseless violence against another human being can change someone forever what did you dislike about it i don't think i disliked anything about it but i think if i did it was just it was very real i want to say like it was almost too real <laughs> um and maybe just because there's just some parallels that um kind of reopened some wounds for me so yeah that's totally fair. That's definitely fair. Uh, I disliked nothing about this movie. So getting into the context and discussion of, of MFA, we're going to talk a little bit about what is, you know, what is rape culture and everything, you know, how, what's the, the status of society and women and rape and, and assault and everything right now. So rape culture is institutionalized attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors that normalize violence against women and in turn condone, conceal, and perpetuate sexual violence. In our rape culture, the accused tears fall heavier than that of the accuser. In our rape culture, the accused quickly becomes a victim. So personally, before doing research and really getting deep involved into these movies and this theme, I didn't really understand what rape culture was. I will be completely honest with everyone. Um, I didn't actually really believe that it was a thing that was happening. I mean, as a society, rape and sexual assault is obviously frowned upon. We don't think it's a good thing. However, it really just seems that that is like a superficial belief and underneath that rape culture is a true and actual thing that happens. And it's so incredibly too bad. For example, as a very, very recent example was the Dr. Ford and Kavanaugh trial. So here are some very explicit true ways in which rape culture is played out um, currently. So other women speaking to the integrity of Kavanaugh's character does not mean that he could never sexually assault someone. So just because someone hasn't assaulted you and they seem like a great person does not mean that they are not capable of these types of acts 
I even personally had somebody that I know, and we are thankfully no longer friends, say that because someone didn't rape her, that means they couldn't have raped anyone else. What the... I remember hearing that she had said this, and it was not surprising because she was kind of mentally ridiculous in all ways, but I was like, are you actually kidding me? There was a rapist within the vegan community, and I couldn't even believe it. So another example of rape culture, drinking does not cause sexual violence. The person that is drinking and the culture in which they are socialized does. So those people that sexually assault people that are when they're drunk do not do that because of the alcohol. They're like, they cannot fall back on that as an excuse. It's because of your attitudes before you're drunk and that are ingrained into you uh, that are obviously amplified when you're drinking, just like other types of violence and terrible behavior. Um, women and their bodies are a battleground for power. Uh, very few women have access to credibility, and even those with Dr. Ford's privilege are not going to be believed. Uh, this is because sexual assault is about power and control, and typically those that do not have power are the ones that are most often victimized. So we have Dr. Ford, who is a doctor. She's highly educated. She's well-spoken. She's also white. Uh, if her story is disregarded and the process made so difficult for her, can you actually imagine anybody else, you know, without her social standing, how that would have played out for them? In rape culture, being accused of sexual assault ruins lives more than the assault itself. So we know the criminal justice system is simply not set up to serve justice to survivors of sexual assault. It fails us time and time and time again. The sexual assault typically happens between two people. It ends up being like a he said, she said type scenario, and they often know each other. And there's few witnesses there to, you know, to present their, you know, their testimony and their experiences with it. So in reality, the pursuit of legal justice for these survivors is over before it even begins. It's such, and this is why I'm sure so many people don't report, because why bother? Nothing's going to happen from it, and it's awful. And so in this way, Kavanaugh's humanity comes first, and his humanity outweighed Dr. Ford's. In the end, that is what ended up happening. And we see it time and time and time again, where the the lives of the attackers are very minimally affected compared to the victims of said assault. I'm going to go, I'm going to talk a little more about rape culture because as Kelly gave some great examples, there's also some other things that we see in terms of rape culture. And I'm going to also give some more further examples and also talk about ways in which you can combat rape culture. So in continuing the definition of rape culture, rape culture, it includes jokes. It includes TV, music, advertising, legal jargon, laws, words, and imagery that make violence against women and sexual coercion seem normal that makes rape inevitable. So sexual violence is normalized in the media and popular culture through misogynistic language, objectification of women's bodies, and glamorization of sexual violence, disregarding women's rights and safety. So here's an example of what rape culture is blaming the victim, saying she asked for it, trivializing sexual assault, saying boys will be boys, sexually explicit jokes, tolerance of sexual harassment, inflating false rape report statistics, uh, publicize, publicly scrutinizing a victim's dress, mental state and motives and history, 
a gratuitous gendered violence in movies and television, defining manhood as dominant and sexually aggressive, defining womanhood as submissive and sexually passive, pressure on men to score, pressure on women on not to appear cold, assuming only promiscuous women get raped, assuming that men don't get raped or that the only weak men get raped, refusing to take rape accusations seriously, and teaching women how to avoid getting raped. So in 2011, if everyone is aware, we have what we call the slut walk. So this was originally inspired in Toronto, here over in Canada, when a Toronto policeman told a group of young women that they should avoid dressing like sluts to prevent assault in 2011. In reaction to this, 3,000 men and women marched in protests, and this inspired 50 other walks in cities around the world with a goal to call out ingrained victim blaming and rape culture. So here are some kind of examples on how to combat rape culture, because there are ways in terms that we, like, I feel like in a way that we sometimes talk about this, that this is like a, a never ending or a losing battle, but they're, but like all things in life, like as, as long as we change the mentality and we change the way we speak and we become more aware that we can eventually, and hopefully, I hope to God one day change the way that rape is dealt with in our society. But to combat rape culture now, we like people like to stress avoiding using language that objectifies or degrades women. Speaking out if you hear someone else making an offensive joke or trivializing rape. If a friend says that they have been raped, take your friend seriously and be supportive. Think critically about the media's messages about women, men, relationships, and violence. Be respectful of others' physical space, even in casual situations. Let survivors know that it is not their fault. Hold abusers accountable for their actions. Do not let them make excuses like blaming the victim, they were drunk, or the drugs were altering their behavior. Always communicate with sexual partners and do not assume consent. And define your manhood or womanhood. Do not let stereotypes shape your actions and be an active bystander. So these are some really powerful messages. And it's interesting because in my own personal life, I've noticed that more people are becoming more consciously aware of these types of actions or even, you know, making sure that they're not just assuming that, you know, it's interesting because I think one of these comments remind me of uh, two of my dating experiences where I was asked on both occasions if I could be kissed. And I remember thinking that's a really amazing way to say like, asking for consent instead of just assuming like oh we're on a second date or something like we're gonna kiss now like that's just an assumption but when someone turns on and says can i kiss you you're like yes i would like that or you know or not putting you in that awkward situation where they're you know back when you're back in high school and your boyfriend goes in for a kiss you're like no i don't want this but you don't want to say no because you don't want to appear frigid right so what's really interesting is that as kelly and i talked about rape culture and talked about all the things that we can do to combat rape culture and identify what is rape culture we watched a film called MFA that literally showed us this in our faces. This is what's happening and it's still happening today. One short side note about the consent aspect of things. And I've seen different things, you know, on the internet, like consent is sexy. It really is. I had my partner talking about dating and things say to me, can I tie you up? Do you trust me? I was like, yes and yes. <laughs> So it's, you can't, it's, you cannot assume anything and men thinking that, you know, they have to put more effort in or they have to ask about things. It's like, it's really nice to be asked things and it's, it is sexy. And it's like, yes, please. Or unless it's no, but at least they've asked, you know, but I feel like when it gets to that point when they're asking, 
that there's been some body language and we're all into this and this is really nice that you're asking. So MFA is written by Leah McKendrick who plays Sky in MFA and directed by Natalia Light. I have a quote here from the director, Natalia. She says, I felt like I had to make this movie because I have a personal connection to it. I had gone to art school and I had been sexually assaulted during art, during going, you know, during art school. So after reading Leah McKendrick's script and seeing so much of her own experience on the page, it was really surreal for her, but she instantly recognized that power, the power that could come with telling such a story on her own terms. So Light says that McKendrick happily allowed her to tweak parts of the narrative and Francesca Eastwood's character, she paid, played Noel, to be more reflective of her own experiences. Eastwood even wore some of Light's old clothes to get into character as Noel, and her banged haircut and black dye job were made to match the director's own look during her art school days. MFA provided the filmmaker with a chance to return to a dark to a dark part of her own life, this time with creative power and the possibility of healing. So Noelle, yeah, she is an art student working on her MFA, which is Master of Fine Arts. Um, we're seeing in the movie her reduced quality of art, you know, her teacher's thinking, like, you can do better than this. But this transforms once she uses her trauma and puts it into her art. It her art becomes very emotional, very powerful, more intense, and she has this, like, untamed creativity. It's quite wonderful to watch and you can tell she's feeling it she's finally getting that kind of the creative juices are flowing she's feeling it she can put something of herself into her work so the aspect of one of the aspects of what i really liked about this movie is that a portion of what i really like about mfa is that it shows a date rape scene as opposed to a gang rape scene which is a relatively common kind of trope or um, type of scene in Rape Revenge, which makes it horrifyingly more relatable to us as women overall, because that's a much more kind of realistic situation to happen. You go to a party, it happens, right? Instead of like a gang rape at a cottage, you know what I mean? So it's, it's much more relatable and definitely, you know, uh, an example of the current climate that, um, that we live in. It happens at a party, it happens with somebody she knows, and it sadly happens with someone she likes. Noelle is this beautiful, intelligent, shy, introverted woman, and the gentleman who assaults her, his name is Luke, and she generally likes him. So it's such ultimate goddamn betrayal of him to rape her at this party. It's literally watching that scene made me so sick because i was like it was like i was watching everything i ever feared about when i first started dating and being like this is exactly why i have so many rules about when i go on first dates <laughs> because like this could happen right it's just that's totally fair i have put myself in a really bad situation sometimes or sorry they could be potentially bad situations thankfully they've never turned out to be bad um but that I've watched a lot of, like I said, a lot of a lot of movies, a lot of rape revenge movies, and this is the only rape that I actually turned away from because it was incredibly realistic. That was what it was, and just like, yep, that could happen, and I had to turn away. It was so uncomfortable. 
It was. So, because I just remember, like, watching it and, like, relating to myself. Like, I was relating to Noelle, like, that the whole shy introvert being nervous about what to wear on going on a date with someone and, you know, like, texting your friend or, like, her friend Sky was there. But, like, I remember texting my friends being like, does this look outfit look okay, right? Like, I don't know what to say. I'm so awkward. What do I do? And, like, that is literally, like, asking my friends for advice about on dating. And then that happens to her. And I'm just like, Fuck. oh, dear God. Right? Oh, dear God. Like, literally... I am so happy that in some of my instincts, I canceled on some dates because I had some weird feelings about them. I don't know if anything would ever happen, but just scare the fuck out of me. Like, just, yeah. That's fair, for sure. And doing some research about this film, uh, one of of the film reviewers, Andrew Barker, describes this film as unapologetically feminist, female-centric take on an often oft problematic and oft male gaze dominated rape revenge thriller genre. This film has a very rich commentary on very timely topics on how institutions handle rape, how they handle rape accusations, the different expectations placed upon women and men, victim blaming, slut shaming, addiction, complicated sexual power dynamics, and also exploring explorations of creative power, inspiration, and female friendships. I remember feeling like when Noelle was getting torn down by her professor about her art and like, you know, make mistakes. And, you know, I, I remember getting mad at him being like, dude, like just that's you're just tearing her down more. And then when she experiences her rape and in a way of healing her trauma, she turns to her art. But a part of me got a little pissed off and being like, so a woman has to get raped and stuff like that to become a better painter, like to become a better artist. Like she's and I was just like, OK, I understand where it's coming from. But at the same time, too, when I'm seeing this professor being like, your, your work is beautiful. I'm seeing all this this feeling. And so I'm like, yeah, because her fucking soul was torn apart by some fucking douchebag art guy that you know, took advantage of her. And I just remember feeling angry about that. Bringing it back to uh, Natalia Light, where one of the reasons why she wanted to make this film, as like Kelly said, is because, you know, experiencing sexual assault in her own uh, late teens, where she was sexually assaulted by a boy in her art school. She felt sick for days, angry and confused. She felt ashamed, alone, and she didn't know what to to turn to for help. And she had no examples of women speaking up and finding justice for this crime. Rather than have this part of my, of her, of part of my life story she pretended it never happened and it seemed easier to deal with the trauma that way but no matter how often she claimed amnesia or she just she couldn't shake it only now years later have I been able to speak up openly of what happened and find women and find support I needed sadly my story is all too familiar to many women and so the reason why she wanted to tell the story is because we live in a world that doesn't fully acknowledge the severity of sexual assault or its effect on victims. Women are constantly bullied into being silent and feeling responsible for someone else's crime. That silence manifests in psychological effects that can be even that can be seen for even years after the assault takes place. Her comments about the violence in this film. So what's really fascinating and interesting with this film is that it does really like the act of violence happens. Um, and it does really focus on the trauma and what women experience after. And I'll, I'll speak to this more later on, but I really identified not only with Noelle in earlier stages of the film, um, but I felt like I really identified with her characterization of Skye and how she tried to deal with what ha- her trauma by, um, like once again, like faking that amnesia. It never happened and turning to things like, you can tell by 
her how her way she lives that light that very light and airy style of you know wearing crystals and having dream catchers and you know probably she's probably does meditation and all these things to kind of help her forget her trauma but at the end of the day she's still hurting inside and she turns to self-injury to release her pain or to not feel you know numb and whereas we see Noelle, she turns to violence and she turns to killing other rapists to inspire her art. So not only that, but the violence in this film, uh, Late talks about, is that it's never a solution for any matter. In creating a female Dexter-type character, I aim to give these women a cathartic experience, the sense of relief that comes from vengeance through the safety of fiction. Since working on this project, I've noticed how many women have been sexually assaulted and need and their need to talk about it. Now is the time to speak up against this issue and address the severity of rape crimes and the long-lasting repercussions they have on their victims. So in MFA, Noelle afterwards, when she's trying to figure things out, she attends a meeting of, I don't even know, I don't know what it's called, I don't know if they stated it, but a campus club for women and sexual violence. You know, Noelle brings up some great points, you know, and so does the group, or do they have more of just a defeated attitude about it? So the group's idea is all about how to protect ourselves from rape. Teach women how to be not raped. Okay. Yes. So how not to be raped um, instead of preventing it from happening at all, which was Noelle's point. Like, how about we just teach people and, you know, just not have men rape women? And, you know, the club had the the idea of, well, currently it's still happening, so how can we try to protect ourselves? So I could see both sides of it, and I definitely more lean towards we need to put more emphasis on the change of stopping the rape and, like, how does it start and then getting it to stop from the get-go so it just doesn't happen anymore. I think Luke is also, also a douche. I, there's the, the only moment that I actually was really angry is when she, Noelle looks at her phone and Luke has messaged her and it's like, want to come over? Are you? Hmm. So she goes over and I was like, what the fuck? So Noelle, Noelle goes over to confront him and is like, you raped me. We need to talk about this. He laughs, says she's crazy and that she liked it. And I could fucking strangle him to death. And I'm going to be totally honest. It makes me sick and I could just shake him. How awful he was to her. I have what the fuck written down many times. It's so disgusting, right? And like, does he know what a good sexual experience is? And that's where my mind went. Does he know what consent is? Do you ever have normal interactions with women? Did you not read any of her body language? Yes, they kissed initially and that was nice, but when it got more heated, she was turning away from it, right? And then how many times she says no? How many times she gets, she tries to get away, but he still has this belief of, yep, you liked it. This was a good experience. Want to come over and do it again? Are you actually nuts? And I think like, what is going on in his head that makes it seem like this is appropriate? It just... It just, it was so awful to see. And I, I'm glad, honestly, that he fell off the banister of the stairs. So after this, you know, uh, her, you know, she does try to, she went, goes to that psychiatrist to like report things. Nothing happens with that. The club is kind of, she's just, everything's just like very discouraging. She's very disenchanted about everything. And then the revenge starts. Lack of justice, which we see in a lot of these different rape revenge movies. There are minimal punishments, and we've said this before, but there's minimal punishments, and women have to live 
dealing with this crime. You know what I mean? They have to deal with this for the rest of their lives. Men are just like, oh, she liked it and carry on. Like they just don't have that, you know, that hindsight of, oh, you know, that probably wasn't appropriate and that probably wasn't a good thing to do. Um, so, you know, the revenge part is cathartic, I think, because it's, you know what, men sometimes, I think, need to feel the fear and the powerlessness that comes with sexual violence that we feel all the time. And remember that we are human beings. We're not just women. We are not just things to have sex with. We are not just these certain aspects of our sexuality or gender or whatever. But in the end, we're still human beings and we need to be treated that way. So during the revenge, you know, Noelle starts to smile again. She feels powerful. She feels sexy. Uh, do you, have you, if you notice the change in her dress, she's showing a lot more midriff, a lot more cleavage. She's feeling more, you know, she's coming into her own in a way. I wish it, it could have happened in, in a different way, but she starts feeling really good about things. Um, once she does use a bit of her sexuality to lure that one frat boy, um, but the rest of it, she does not use her sexuality, which I enjoy. It's just like, she just goes for it. She does get caught in the end, which, you know, like I spent on your grave, it just abruptly ends. We don't have any kind of closure. We kind of don't, we don't know what happens afterwards. Like, where are they now type thing. So she, do, she does get punished for her crimes, which is very different and not common in rape revenge films. Uh, the movie is wonderful because it shows just different ways that people deal with trauma. You know, the woman with the video that she goes to meet up with, she went like full legal action. Like she went like the full thing, which was also very disenchanting because it didn't really amount to anything. There are some people that just wanted to go away, which is Sky. And then we have the vigilanteism, quote unquote, you know, taking action into your own hands because you're frustrated with the lack of justice. Like nothing's going to be happening to them. So why even bother? A quote by director Natalia Light, most people don't realize just how horrific rape is as a crime. So prepare to prepare for the scene, director says she watched a lot of movies that depicted rape, especially other rape revenge films. One thing she noticed was that many of these, directed mostly by men, were shot to show the full picture of what was happening, meaning the audience could see the rapist taking pleasure from the act. So for the scene in MFA, she says, we shot with a really wide lens, which is different from how we shot the rest of the movie, and we're really in her face. We see him in the background, penetrating her, but we're not with him, we're with her. There was a lot of conscious choice in thinking about how this was going to affect the viewer. Painfully. It could have been a more metaphorical representation where we hear the springboard on the bed, but I wanted it to be very raw and real and with her. No, definitely that, that rape scene is very, very impacting. So I had a lot of, I had a lot to say. I, I feel like I have a lot to say about this film. I can't really cohesively try and get it all together in this podcast, but I feel you guys will see in a blog post coming out about my reaction to rape revenge uh, uh, films, particularly this film and being a survivor of sexual assault as well. But what I found interesting in watching this film was the concept of women versus women when it comes to rape. Um, watching this film, you see variations of how people deal with um, with rape and the concept of rape and how to deal with and address it. And you see a very a varying degrees of how women, and it, come, it takes us back to this idea of women supporting women, but sometimes that's not always the case. And we see that this in the psychiatrist, 
this woman infuriated me. Watching any scenes with this woman just made me so angry because she sits there in her fancy suit and her fancy clothes and her fancy office and she's grilling Noelle about what happened to her. And she reacts and she enacts victim blaming. She hides, she's one of the people that's hiding the stats. You know, she writes that Skye had a borderline personality disorder when these women, these vulnerable women came, come to her and said, I've been raped. And she's asking Noelle, well, did you say wait or did you say no? And she is just representative of that system of, other, of women within the system perpetrating a system of violence against other women to protect an institution. The women's group, uh, a group of middle upper class young women trying to help survivors of rape. And they do this through beauty drives. They do this through like, you know, fundraisers, uh, the whole bringing, introducing nail polish to that indicates a, you know, a date rape drug. And I can see where their hearts are all in a good place, but it's still not enough. And it almost feels defeatist. Like they're just perpetrating rape culture by just giving tool, tools to women to feel safe. And this is where I've addressed that this is an example of rape culture that Yes, you can give tools to women to feel safe, but it shouldn't be that way. We should be ending to fight rape. We should be educating men and women that rape is wrong, cons like consent is sexy. This is what is important and no means no. And that it's ridiculous that women have to always play it safe, safe and always live their lives in fear of being raped. And then we also see the female survivors. You know, we see the mutual understanding between women, but through fear. So both Sky and I think the other woman that she meets, her name is Lindsay. Like when they both come out and they accuse, then they talk about their rape and they break their silence, they are accused of being seen as crazy and lying. And also because their social statuses, you know, Lindsay talks about, she's like, oh, I'm poor and stuff like that. So you guys wouldn't believe me against some rich Ivy League guys. And we see this sisterhood and survival while each of the other, but they're still alone when they tell each other to hush. I remember first watching it and remember meeting the character of Skye. She's like this, you know, lovey, airy, you know, airy fairy person who's, you know, like, oh, go get the guy and peas and carrots. And and then when she, t when she tells a story about her friend who had been raped, I remember sitting here being like, why is she telling her to be, you know, be, be quiet? And a quote from the film, like she says to Noelle, like, it was one shitty night. Don't let it ruin the rest of your life. And I remember when, I, when she first said that, and I remember getting so angry and I was like, this is exactly how survivors are silenced. They're told to just move on from it, that it never happened and just don't tell anyone, just be quiet. But then you find out her story and you find out that she's trying to protect Noelle because she's already experienced the trauma of the trauma of telling someone that she's been sexually assaulted and how the courts went against her and the courts didn't believe her and they made her sound like she was crazy. So she was trying to protect Noelle from that same trauma. And this is kind of how survivors are you know protecting each other and i think how fucked up that is that a survivor has not only to deal with the trauma of herself but then she has to end up dealing with the trauma of speaking out about it the grilling questions the court cases the years of trying to get your life back together but it will never be the same again the you know the impacts the mental and emotional physical impacts that a trauma like that has on a person from ptsd to depression you know future int intimacy problems in relationships you know not thinking that something that happened to you you know so many years ago will never impact you but it will always you know haunt you for the rest of your life so in my research, not only about MFA and about, you know, current sexual assault facts, I felt like MFA touches upon each one of these very real facts. I'm just kind of, I'm going to kind of list them off here for you guys. Um, fact. 
Sexual assault is never the victim's fault. Sexual assault is a violent attack on an individual, not a spontaneous crime of sexual passion. For a victim, it is humiliating and a degrading act. No one asks for it or deserves this type of attack. Most sexual assaults are committed by someone the victim knows. Studies show that approximately 80 to 90% of women reporting sexual assaults know their assailant. Reported sexual assaults are true, with very few exceptions. According to Conisacs, only 2% of reported rapes are false. This is the same rate of false reporting as other major crime reports. Sexual assault is motivated by hostility, power, and control. Sexual assaults are not motivated by sexual desire. Unlike animals, humans are capable of controlling how they choose to act or repress sexual urges. Anytime someone is forced to have sex against their will, they have been sexually assaulted, regardless of whether or not they fought back or said no. There are many reasons why a victim may not physically fight their attacker, including shock, fear, threats, or the size and strength of their attacker. And, and another final fact is survivors exhibit a spectrum of emotional responses to assault. They can be calm, they, they experience hysteria, laughter, anger, apathy, shock. Each survivor copes with the trauma of the assault in a different way. And this is what we saw in MFA. So women in revenge. Why is most often in revenge films involving women related to sexual violence? As we know, there are many different things that we could avenge against. So somebody had brought this up. I know uh, my friend Ali is tired of the rape trope in movies. So we wanted to briefly touch upon that and just did a wonderful blog post about it already. So please go read that. <laughs> uh, so I'm going to open with a Kier La Jeunesse quote. She is a feminist and author of House of Psychotic Women. So in response to when people state that rape revenge is just exploitation, she said, uh, people don't realize that the rape scene is the single greatest justification for anything else in the film that follows no matter how illogical unbelievable sadistic misanthropic graphic torturous the audience will accept any direction the story takes because culturally rape is worse than death so culturally rape is the worst thing that you could do to a woman which is probably why we see so many rape related revenge scenarios and it's also something that I think universally we could relate to. I don't have children. I'm never going to have children. So if there was a movie where somebody killed their children and they wanted to avenge the death of their kids, I could probably sympathize, but I definitely can't empathize. That's not one that maybe I would get pretty excited over. I will say, though, I would John Wick anyone's ass who came and killed my cats. Oh, fuck, yeah. <laughs> Anyone touch my cats, I'm fucking going to murder every single person. <laughs> right? And I want to see that movie. I want to see a John Wick movie that it's a woman and a bunch of fucking cats, and they come in and kill our cats, and then we fucking... <gasps> oh, God, no! And then it's like, let's have Charlize Theron maybe do it, too, because oh. she's quite wonderful. Go out and fucking kill everyone. I want to see that movie, folks. <laughs> I just don't want to see the cats being killed. I just of don't course want. not. You don't see the puppy killed in John Wick either. You just see the dead body. It's probably Aww. not real. It's not real. But yeah, things are so... <laughs> just, like, just the idea of someone killing my cats. I'd just be like, oh my god. It's my fucking nightmare. It is. Like oh. somebody breaking into my place. You could steal literally every single item I own. But if you do anything to my cats, that's it. <laughs> so three... <laughs> Three uh, examples of 
women-based revenge movies that does not overall relate to sexual assault, rape, or uh, that type of violence is 88, a movie I just watched recently. Starling Catherine Isabel, Lady Vengeance, a Korean film, and Audition another Korean film. Yeah, so like I said, I've already talked um, in depth in a blog post about other ideas of why women would take revenge outside of the rape revenge um, trope of of films that we see. Like I talked about my monthly pick this month was about Jennifer's body. While she doesn't necessarily enact revenge herself, she does in a way because her life was taken from her and so she's just kind of as a succubus killing all the people. Um, But her friend Needy ends up taking revenge on her behalf. You know, we see in other types of films, and I've talked about this about, uh, you know, Beatrix Kiddo and Kill Bill. Her revenge comes from her life being taken from her where, you know, she was murdered and her child being taken away. And I can go into more detail, but I'm not going to. Go read my blog post on the website about other ideas of why women would take revenge. But there are other ways that women in society are wronged. Whether it's by whether it's a friend stealing another friend's boyfriend or husband, or being denied a promotion or a pay raise at work, or being bullied, physically, mentally, and emotionally attacked by a lover, peers, or friends, or family, or being made to doubt your own abilities or talents. Sometimes revenge is taken out in violent means, other times it's done through clever and strategic ways of finding, like such as finding a legal clause that allows you to take over your ex-husband's investments. Revenge can come in all different packages, but the one that hurts, the one that hurts the most and, and, and is the one the most damaging is a, is, a, is a rape. Because it is, like Kelly said, the worst thing that can happen to a woman. So I have uh, another quote here from uh, dir- the director of uh, MFA, Natalia Light, because she's uh, she gives some really great quotes about this film, and really great, some interesting insights. And what she says is that we need to open the doors to discussions about rape and rape culture so that we can begin to reconcile our collective past and create a future without amnesia. If MFA can act as a catalyst to these conversations, then all of the hard work we put into it will be well worth it. So I will not lie, this was a very hard and triggering month for me. As a survivor of sexual assault, when we decided to do this topic, I felt like I could handle it. That what happened to me 20 plus years ago, and that since I had undergone years of counseling and personal self-work, I felt I was in a good place with what happened to me. However, you never realize how much trauma, how much of the trauma of those moments and the resulting trauma after it never really leaves you that it forever changes your life from the way you engage socially in the world, the way you dress, set up rules for yourself to protect yourself, to always making sure that you never find yourself in that situation ever again. That there will always be the underlying fear of how vulnerable you can be again. These films, while hard to endure, they revealed some wounds that were never fully healed. I feel like I feel that each in their own ways, both of these films are extremely, they bring out, they bring this extremely important social issue to light and continue the discussion around it. No matter how hard they were to watch and stomach, I agree that they bring value to the genre and to the society as a whole. The truth is that rape is ugly. And as Noelle states in her speech at the end of the film MFA, aim not to preserve the beauty, but expose the truth. Dare to make up, make the world uncomfortable with your honesty, no matter what the consequence is, because the world will be better for it, and you will be better for it. My final thoughts will begin with that. As our opening question, and the title of this episode is, are rape revenge movies feminist or filth? I find them feminist, and I've never thought anything different. I think they're very empowering revenge fantasies. I, I want to say I thankfully have never experienced any sexual assault or rape, but I, see, I feel like saying thankfully is a really 
weird thing to be thankful for. Uh, maybe I'm just lucky. I don't know. Um, I'm glad for sure. And I am sorry for everyone else that has had to experience that. I can't even imagine. So I can sympathize. I cannot empathize with the, the women in these movies, but I definitely can sympathize. Rape is still a contentious issue. I hope one day it's not, likely not in our lifetime. We have Trump. <sighs> we have the Weinsteins. Like, this shit is out there still. It's terrible. I remember recently hearing about the rape kit backlogs, that there are hundreds of thousands of untested rape kits in the U.S., and there is a website, www.endthebacklog.org. And these are the people that are advocating to test these damn, like get these tests done. There's DNA on these tests. Maybe we could bring some closure to some of these people's lives. It's, obvious, it's not going to make them better because their trauma is forever. But it shows a complete disregard for these sex crimes. Why aren't they being taken seriously? I don't know. I don't know if anybody truly knows. But hundreds of thousands of rape kits left untested in the U.S. Why? They've, they've given them out. People have used them. But then you never tested them. It's damn terrible. The 20th century has seen a bit of a revival in the rape revenge kind of genre. We see, we've seen revenge. We have MFA, the I Spin in Your Grave remake, American Mary. Maybe it's due to the lack of justice. We're still not serving our women properly. Um, these issues are still happening. There's minimal changes. One of the biggest things that I got out of MFA that really spoke to me and what ends up uh, staying with me for days after besides the imagery is that there's no rehab for these assaulters, these attackers of women, these assaultists, the harassment, the rape. Obviously, they have attitudes towards women and beliefs that need to be addressed. In Rape Revenge, it's a total fantasy and to be able to get back at the attackers. However, and though I really thoroughly enjoy the catharsis that it brings me that these men die, in the end, nobody learns anything. These men are dead. They cannot be changed and nothing can be like their deaths do not teach other men not to do it. And that is what really stuck with me through MFA. Like Luke is dead now, but he cannot change. These men could become better human beings and better men to women if we helped them out, but we don't do that. We just teach women how not to be raped. We don't teach men to not rape women. So that ends our episode on the controversial subgenre rape revenge. We want to thank Dance the Dead for our intro and outro music, Robeast. Blair for his assistance in editing our episodes and all of you listeners who have been engaging and supporting us in the last five months. We want to remind you to follow us on our website, www.spinstersofhorror.com, our Facebook, Spinsters of Horror, and Twitter, at Horror Spinsters. You can also find us on Instagram at Spinsters of Horror. As well, please rate and review us on SoundCloud, Stitcher. We are now on iTunes and any other podcasting app that you listen to us on. Please rate and review because it will really help us out. Also, we now have merchandise. Please visit Tee Public to purchase one of our t-shirts. Um, you can also get t-shirts, you can get tank tops, you can get hoodies, sweaters. It's all awesome stuff. And uh, 
Tune in next month when we have some fun and introduce part one of a three-part series on the big three horror franchises, Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, and Friday the 13th. With a discussion on these iconic slashers and an analysis on the variations of Finer Girls, we will kick off the series with discussion of Nightmare on Elm Street 1 to 5. Until then, remember, the future of fear is female.